Well, good morning again, church. For those of you who don't know, my name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor here, and I'm excited that you're here this morning as we begin the season of preparation toward Christmas. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to be uh, reading from John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Um, It is probably not uh, a, a, a passage of Scripture that we often hear as we approach the holidays, <clears throat> but in my mind is one of the most powerful. So, John chapter 1, I'm only going to be reading uh, about six verses, <clears throat> excuse me, so beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then I'm skipping down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Oh God, we have read your word, holy, set apart, perfect, complete. And now, in the brokenness of our own abilities to speak, in the foolishness of our preaching, we seek to proclaim this holy word. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the next couple of weeks, folks are going to be commenting on the meaning of Christmas. What is the real meaning of Christmas? And so one of my jobs as one of your pastors is to try to prepare you or to remind you, if you already know these things, to encourage you to be ready to speak into those moments about the real meaning of Christmas. Now, there's lots of answers about what the real meaning of Christmas is. So, for example, lots of folks will say that the real meaning of Christmas is about gifts. This has been brought to us by our friendly retailers throughout the United States. There are other people who say that the real meaning of Christmas, predominantly those who are moms and grandmas, who remind us that the true meaning of Christmas is about family, which is sort of a veiled way of saying, you better be home for the holidays. There is, of course, another very important reason for Christmas. I find this to be mainly among those of you who are my brothers in Christ, although it's not limited to just us. Some of you sisters in Christ can catch this bug as well, and that is it is is important for us to have the biggest and best decorated house in the neighborhood. One of my favorite traditions of Christmas, outside of those things that the church has taught me, is the constant litany of Christmas movies. My family and I just watched this this past weekend. This was our Thanksgiving kickoff for the holidays, Home Alone, one of my favorite. Um, I'm not sure our children really had ever seen it before. They laughed, and I laughed with them. It is one of the greatest. There are some Christmas movies that I love more 
that even the bond of holy matrimony has not allowed my wife to say, we can watch that as a family. So there's just some movies that I'll have to catch on, you know, on the fly. One of those movies is very near and dear to me. One of the greatest Christmas movies I have ever known, and that's Die Hard. (laughs) Now, I'm just going to... Shauna says this isn't a Christmas movie. Help me. How many say this is a Christmas movie? Okay, the rest of you can go with the folks who have no soliciting on their door. (laughs) Oh, well. I encourage you. How many even know what Die Hard is? Okay, well, that was better than the first service. So, (laughs) anyway. Well, we need to take a few moments to really delve into what Christmas really is. What is the real... Let's get Die Hard off there. What is the real meaning of Christmas? The word Christmas, or the Christ Mass, is actually a transliteration. Now, that's a strange word. It's different than translation. A transliteration is when you take English letters and put to a foreign word. So, for example, baptize is not a translated word. It's a transliterated word because the Greek word is baptizo. So we just take English letters and put it to the Greek, and baptizo becomes baptism. Christmas is the same sort of thing. It's a transliterated word. It's not an English word per se, and it comes from the Latin word or Latin words, Christus Misa, Christus Misa, which if you literally translated it, didn't just transliterate it, but translated it, it would mean the Christ mission. Now, these words show up a lot in our language from time to time, and too often we completely miss what they mean. As a matter of fact, a lot of folks will say to me, we need to be sure to keep Christ and Christmas. I might want to remind you that it's important for us also to keep the Mass in Christmas. Now, if you have family or friends or you have come from the Roman Catholic tradition, this makes sense to you. Because our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, they use the word mass to describe the service of worship. But the word mass is an English word for the Latin misa, which simply means mission. That is, according to our Roman brothers and sisters, when we come to worship, you and I are coming to hear about the mission of Christ. And when we leave, we are called to go forth with the mission of Christ. That is, as you and I are called to announce God's love through Christ to the world, that the Christ Mass, that the Christmas, the Feast of the Nativity. If you were here last week, you you know what that means. If you weren't here last week, turn and ask your neighbor, and we'll see if they remember the Christ mission. So what Christmas literally means, the word Christmas means the Christ mission. That is the mission of Christ who was coming to restore the relationship between God and humanity. It is uh, the statement that comes out of the first prophecy in your Bible. Now, we're going to hit a lot of Bible today. It's going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. 
That's okay. Just keep up as best you can. If you're taking notes, you, wanna, you, you might want to write down some of these references so that you can go back this afternoon or sometime this week and look up what the references I'm mentioning to you are. You can also pick up a study guide for the day sermon that's on a stand by the Welcome Center. Uh, our small groups will be looking at it. If you're not in a small group, we really encourage you to think about getting into one. But if not, definitely please pick up one of those study guides and be sure to look up these texts. Or you can write them down now. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, 15. The first prophecy in your Bible. Adam and Eve have disobeyed God, and God is announcing the punishment to Adam and Eve and then to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. And to the serpent, God says this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I read from the English Standard Version, but the King James Version has got this down better. The King James Version says, you shall strike his heel and he shall crush your head. King James didn't mess around. That is, is that our rebellion against God will be rectified by the descendant of Adam and Eve through the house of Judah, the son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus would stretch out his arms on the cross and three days later, he would defeat sin and death by walking out of a tomb that sought to imprison him. From there, he would ascend into heaven and take his place at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear again and again the scriptures that recount the preparation, the announcement, and the fulfillment of God's promise of a coming Messiah. Now, those best love passages, the ones that we all love to hear and read at our family gatherings at Christmas Eve, and if you don't do that, it's a great tradition to begin. Before you open presents, nothing evokes joy in a child's heart than to say, before you can open a present, let me read from the Gospel of Matthew. The best love passages are found in Matthew, where we read about the birth of Christ and the coming of the Magi, but not the shepherds, and the Gospel of Luke, where we read about the birth of Christ with the shepherds, but not the Magi. These will be echoed by your pastors over the next couple of weeks, by our choir, and from a very special reader that we have for Christmas Eve, little plug here, 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock at Christmas Eve, we will have a very special reader who will tell us again the Christmas story from Matthew and Luke, has been doing it since 1965 and hasn't aged one day. Have a picture interest. The Gospel of John also reminds us of a story about the coming of Christ. Now, it may not be as festive, it may not be as traditional, but the first five verses of John's Gospel teach us much about Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, and what it has to do with me. You know, the birth of this Jesus is such a powerful event that you and I even count time based on it. I mean, this is 2019 AD. 
which means Anno Domini, or in the year of our Lord. Now, there are even those uh, folks in the world that are uncomfortable with that, and so they've changed B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, to B.C.E., before Common Era, or C.E., Common Era. And, and although that, if that makes them feel better, great. But the fact of the matter is, is, is that even those terms, although they're different, they still refer to the exact same thing that happened, the birth of Jesus Christ. That is the most pivotal point in human history, and it has changed everything. The birth of Jesus has literally changed the world. His teachings have become the standard for human behavior. How we relate to one another. How our culture, our community relates to one another. It's given rise to the Western civilization, which is the largest and most successful model of living together that we have ever known in human history. And by the way, which is crumbling today. It has given us a catalog of our responsibilities to one another. And even those folks who are great thinkers in the world... They have made their mark in human history either by talking about the significance of the birth of Jesus or seeking to detract from it. People like Nietzsche or Marx or Lenin or Mao, all of those guys seek to make their mark on the world by speaking against Jesus. Whether you're for him or whether you're against him, the birth of Christ is the standard. It is the pivotal point in human history. As a matter of fact, how we understand government, philosophy, and believe it or not, science. The church invented science. Medicine. The first hospitals were from the church. Agriculture. Our first understanding of how to propagate crops comes from the ministry of the church. And unfortunately, even war, but also peace, has been because of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, when folks start to ask me those questions, they skip a question that I think is really important. And it's this question. When did Christ exist? Now, that may seem like an unusual question to you, especially since I just got done going on a big diatribe about how we count time based on the birth of Jesus. I mean, after all, wasn't Jesus born in year one? Some folks say year zero. That's not true. There was no year zero. There are other highfalutin people who say it was probably year three or year five. You know what? All of those answers are really irrelevant because when did Christ exist predates all of those discussions and arguments. And John gives us the answer in the first two words of his gospel. In three words. In the beginning. Christ was in the beginning. Now, that may sound familiar to you, doesn't it? Because you may know that your Bible begins with the book of Genesis, and the first three words of the book of Genesis are, in the beginning, God created. You see, John is directly drawing a parallel here. This is intentional. 
It's not an accident. He's trying to remind us that the beginning of Jesus is the beginning given to us in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. John uses this same exact way of beginning his writings when he writes his first letter called the Epistle of John. 1 John is a little bit later in your New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In 1st John, he begins from the beginning. This is important to John. It's important that we understand that John is trying to teach us something that is called the eternal preexistence of Christ. That is, is that Jesus was before anything else. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Before the universe was, brothers and sisters, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God and God the Son, existed. John adds the first verb to his letter. In the beginning, was. That is, is that the pre-incarnate Jesus, the G- incarnate meaning to clothe with flesh. If you remember your Spanish from high school, carne means meat, incarnation, to be in flesh. Before God clothed himself with flesh, before God became human, the second person of the Trinity was and has always been. As a matter of fact, John tries to explain this even further when he records Jesus' teaching in John chapter 8, verse 58. John 8, 58. Jesus is talking to the Jews about who he is. And Jesus says to the Jews, he says, Abraham was looking forward to the day of my appearing. And the Jews say to Jesus, how can that be? You're not even 50 years old yet. I guess 50 is one of those markers of when you can know Abraham or not. And Jesus says this, John chapter 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that was monumental. Why? Well, I can tell you that those who were listening to Jesus were so furious with him for saying this that they began to pick up stones and throw them at him. Why that response? Because what Jesus was claiming, he was claiming the sacred name of God as his own. The I am who I am, or simply I am, as his own. Even before light was created, the eternal word Jesus Christ existed. There was no sun, there was no moon, there was no earth, there was no time, there was no space, there was no way of keeping time, and there was nothing in which to keep time. Before all of that, Jesus existed. When did Christ exist? The question that no one asks. Even before anything else, even before anyone else existed. But the next question is more common. That is, who is Christ? The who is this Jesus? Now, if he didn't even receive his name, Jesus, until he was born, what do we call him? I mean, after all, uh, we need to know somebody's name before we can know someone, can't we? I mean, that's the first question we always ask when we meet somebody new. What's your name? 
That's what you always say to somebody when you meet them. Hi, my name. Hi, my name is Ike. As a matter of fact, I tell folks my name before I tell them to whom I'm married, my children, what I do. My name is important. So who is Jesus? What should we call him? And John answers that question as well. In the beginning was the Word. Christ is the Word, or the Logos. Now, I'm giving you that term Logos because every good Christian ought to know that word. It's a word in the Greek, but it is how we refer to Jesus before he was born. He was the Logos, the Word. The word Logos literally means the Word. How does God begin to create in Genesis? Do you remember that? I mean, there are other religions that talk about how creation is. I mean, there's a god and a goddess, and they come together. You know how that works, right? I've seen your children. I know you know how that works. Other religions, they'll have a, a, one god start arguing with another god, and they'll have a big battle, and one god will kill the other god, and the corpse of the, of the god that was defeated becomes sort of the garden for the beginning of, a, of an earth and creation. But how does Christianity, how does Judaism understand the creative work of God? The one true God of the universe simply speaks. Let there be light. And there was light. The celestial bodies in the heavens, the planets, the stars, the earth, The oceans, the dry land, the mountains, the river, all of those come into being simply because the Word spoke them into being. Now listen, for for John, just as words utter thought, that is, I can't know what you're thinking until what? You tell me what you're thinking. So just like words help me understand what you're thinking, so too does the Word, the Logos, Jesus, help us understand God. Without words, I can't understand your thoughts. Without the Word, I can't know who God is. That's what John is trying to drive home here. The Word reveals to us That God is life, that God is light, that God is love. And none of these things we would have ever known unless the Word revealed them to us. Now, now listen, I get excited at this point. I might become one of those kind of preachers that jump around on, on the platform here. Because you see, We've been talking about the big story now and again as I've been with you, the meta-narrative as we call it, the big story of Scripture, the, the whole story that kind of connects all of the Bible together. John writes the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, that's when we're beginning to read about the return of Christ. And John tells us the name of the one who is coming. And he says, quote, his name is called the Word of God. Well, that's all well and good, Pastor. Appreciate all that. But what's that got to do with me? What does that mean to my life? 
Well, I'm not going to answer that yet. Because what you should have asked me is another question. What is Christ's relationship with the Creator? The Father. The first person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, John answers that question. He says, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this wasn't something utterly strange to our Hebrew brothers and sisters. In Psalm 33, 4, here we go. I'm going to give you some scripture, so buckle up. Psalm 33, 4, 33, chapter 33, verse 4 and verse 6, we read, For the word of the Lord is upright, and again, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Again, in Psalms 107, 20, he sent out his word and healed them. And Proverbs 8, 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and perfect unity and fellowship. In John 12, 41, Jesus tells the people who are struggling to understand that when Isaiah was prophesying, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 6, you can go back and read those prophecies. Jesus quotes them in John chapter 12. Jesus himself says these words, Isaiah said these things, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 6, because he saw his glory and spoke of him, referring to himself. Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now listen. I know folks say to me all the time, that's only just a few. I just gave you a few. We could stay here all day and I could give you citation after citation, quote after quote. I'm always intrigued when people come to me and say, nowhere in the New Testament did Jesus ever be claim, uh, claim to be God. What? It's all through the New Testament. His divinity. I have tried to make a big deal about it. If you have missed that I've been trying to make a big deal of his divinity, go on back to sleep. I've tried to make a big deal about it. I want you to understand. I've tried to make a big deal about his glory, his eternality. I want you to know that I believe, confess, and proclaim that Jesus is God. Why have I done that? Because he gave every bit of that up for you and me. Every bit of it. He walked away from to redeem us. So, what is Christ's relationship to me? Even as you and I were spoken into existence into the wombs of our mother, it was Jesus, the Word, that called us into existence. What's my biblical proof for that? We just got to read a little bit more in John. All things were made through him, and him was life, our light. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Unless the word, the Logos, spoke you into existence, you would not be here. Hear that. 
I want you to know that the eternal word of the universe directly, undeniably, without any mistake, according to his divine will and sovereign plan, spoke to your parents and into your mother's womb and said, let there be life. And the eternal word had you exactly in mind when he did that. You were brought into existence because of the sovereign will of God. It is never an accident that God calls life into existence. It is a gift. It is a gift that you and I are here. A gift from the very eternal word. He loved you so much that he created you. Spoke you into existence. And then what happened? He loved you so much that he redeemed you. Ensuring you and the word, Jesus, would be together forever. That's his goal for you. He wants to be with you forever. The word became flesh. I'm almost done. Almost. There we go. We're almost to the real meaning of Christmas. The real meaning of the holiday. Incarnation. That's a really big word. I've already told you it literally means to cover with flesh. The incarnation, that is God became human. That's what Christmas is about. Now, it's nice to look at a beautiful nativity or a creche, as the highfalutin Christians say. Beautiful nativity, and, and you see Mary and Joseph and Mary in her blue and Joseph holding a lamp oftentimes and baby Jesus in the middle with some magi who didn't come for several years later, but that's another story. And, and then the, the shepherds and and a little drummer boy in my favorite nativity scene, we actually have a bagpiper in one of our, I mean, what, you got to have a bagpiper in a, in a nativity scene. Even though the bagpipe hadn't been invented, that's irrelevant. But one of the most monumental things when I look at a nativity is as I look at Mary, particularly the ones where Mary's holding Jesus. You ever had a baby? Do you know what it's like to hold a baby's hand? You've done that. You take the baby's hand and you put it up next to your hand. I wonder as Mary held her son's hand, did she realize that someday nails would pierce those hands? Isn't it interesting that the only feet in the world that don't stink are a baby's feet? And Mary took her little baby's feet. His little baby's feet. Did she ever realize that someday one of those feet would be put on top of the other and a nail would have been driven through it, believing that that was those nails that held him to the cross when you and I both know it was his love. When you hold the baby close to your chest and you can smell the, the sweetness of their hair, the softness of their brow, and you can't help but kiss their brow, the brow of their head, did she ever even contemplate that there would be a day when a crown of thorns would be thrust down onto that baby's head 
as the folks around the cross derided him and calling him the king of the Jews. You know, we look down at that baby, especially some of us who are brothers in Christ, dads, or some of you mama bears, and you look down at that baby and all you want to do is to hover over that baby and protect it and care for him. You think about what would have been like if I could go back in time and I could be there and I could stop all of those horrific things from happening. And we presume ourselves to be the defenders of this baby. But the truth is, it is the baby who is our defender. It is the baby who protects us. It is the baby who enfolds us in his arms and gives us eternal life. You see... The season of Christmas is filled with joyful sounds of carols, smells of baked goods, the laughter of family, the occasional argument, the exchanging of gifts and trees and lights that drive the darkness of winter away. And although those things are nice, they're not the real meaning of Christmas. The real meaning of Christmas? Well, that's easy. And it can be summed up in one sentence. Christmas means God came to us because we could not get to him. Merry Christmas. Oh God, as we approach the days and weeks to come, we are going to be tempted into the focus of all of the things that make this a joyful season. And we're grateful for that. And we pray that we'll enjoy it. We'll sense the warmth of family and church gathered together. We'll come to the awareness of the power and importance of family and reconciliation. We'll give you thanks for the bounty and the festive spirits. But Father, help us never forget the real meaning of Christmas that you stepped down from the eternal throne of the universe, clothed yourself with flesh, and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, which means God with us. May that meaning, the true meaning of Christmas, never be forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. The elders.